Tegan, I'm happy to report that ours was not the balloon that got shot down this week. We're still flying. We are still flying. Week number two. I'm not sure if it was a marketing stunt on our part that went bad or that we just got involved in some international geopolitical crisis. Anyway, it was an unfortunate timing or maybe fortunate timing uh, that our podcast released the same time that that spy balloon traversed the United States. I hope that our podcast traversed the United States as well. We did get a tweet. And as I replied to that fellow, you say that our podcast came out the same time as their balloon. Personally, I remain suspicious that China launched their balloon to time with our pod launch. Coincidence? (laughs) Exactly. And we've learned that this spy balloon has been part of a much broader surveillance program that the Chinese have across continents. And I'd like you to know, Chris, that I looked at the statistics and we have listeners across Europe, from Ireland to the UK, to France, Italy, Spain. We were heard in Australia, in Malaysia, in Kazakhstan, in India, in Ecuador as well. That was the one country in South America that listened to us. That's certainly cool, although it also might be that you just went to all those countries, hit play, and then kept moving just so that you could get a stat that someone in another country listened. But it's fantastic. In fact, we we did get lots of very positive comments. Thank you to everyone who sent them. And thank you more, of course, to everyone who did not like the podcast and said nothing. Exactly. You're our favorite people. Yeah. there's, There's only so much I can take. We even got some mailbag questions, which we will begin to address today. And I am also happy to report that none of them were about Hunter Biden. So we don't have to touch (laughs) on that topic today. If you want to send questions for the mailbag, here's how. If you are listening to this via Political Wire, you know how to get in touch with Tegan via the website or reply to one of his new Politics Extra Substack newsletters. If you're listening to this via Chris Reback's newsletter, email me any questions by simply replying to any day's newsletter. Now, let's get on with business. Topic number one, Social Security, Medicare, and the State of the Union. Tegan, we all saw it in real time as Politico reports. Biden was having fun looking at booing Republicans with a smile. He accused, quote, some of my Republican friends of wanting to sunset Social Security and Medicare as he acknowledged that I'm not saying this is a majority who backs a proposal last year from Florida Senator Rick Scott. Amid shouts of liar, Biden responded, anybody who doubts it, contact my office and I will give you a copy of the proposal. As audible protests continued, Biden returned the volley in seemingly spontaneous fashion. So folks, as we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare off the books now, right? All right, we've got unanimity. Was it really that easy for Biden to bait Republicans into his briar patch? It was really the key moment of that speech. And, you know, for all the talk that Biden is 80 years old and not necessarily the greatest speaker and not very quick on his feet, it seems so natural to him the way that he engaged Republicans. And one of the reasons for that is I think the White House planned for that moment. It's very clear. We heard within the first 12 hours after his speech that Biden was planning, you know, such remarks. He didn't know exactly how the Republicans would respond with the heckling and all of that. But nonetheless, they did. And it's very clear that the White House has done their opposition research on these issues, Social Security and Medicare. There are a lot of Republicans right now who are worried about things that they said back at the advent of the Tea Party, for instance. There are an awful lot of Republicans, and Joe Biden said he didn't name them there in the speech, 
But in his subsequent travel after the speech, he started to name some of these Republicans who have indeed said that they would like to cut Medicare, to cut Social Security, to revamp them, to reform them. And with Senator Rick Scott, who had a painful appearance on CNN this morning, trying to defend the fact that he wanted all laws, including Social Security and Medicare, to sunset. That was a brutal interview with Caitlin Collins on CNN, where Scott did not have an answer for it. And I think the White House and President Biden knew that Republicans aren't going to have an answer for it, which is why it made it so easy for them. Okay, two thoughts come to mind. One, yes, some of those early Tea Party comments, you saw the video, I'm sure I think it was from 2010, maybe 2011, of uh, now Utah Senator Mike Lee back then saying how, I'm paraphrasing, but basically Social Security and Medicare aren't working and we need to stop those. Yeah, it was a great video. And then, of course, the video of him at the State of the Union expressing shock that Joe Biden was suggesting that Republicans wanted to cut Medicare and Social Security. We're recording this on a Thursday, and that video will have a link in Politics Extra down at the bottom. And it's worth watching because it really is the case that a lot of these Republican lawmakers are trying to gaslight the voters right now. They did say something 10, 12 years ago. They have said these things in closed encounters with their supporters, and now it's coming back to bite them because it's not a popular policy. The other point that you made, though, Tegan, when you said that the White House had really planned for the moment, I understand what I think you're saying, which is they'd done their opposition research or they'd done the research, as you just said. They knew that Social Security, they knew Medicare, very popular topics with most of the public, and they knew what Rick Scott had put out there. They knew what Mike Lee and others had said years and years before. But they couldn't have planned. Maybe they had a hint how the Republican House members would react But not just the way they reacted, not just the Marjorie Taylor Greens yelling liar and the the other comments that were made, but Biden's response to their response, the way that he handled it, they could not have planned that. That was really the key to the whole exchange, wasn't it? I think it was. I mean, if you had listened to Speaker McCarthy before the State of the Union, you know, he told his caucus to be respectful, to be respectful of the president, to be respectful of the office. This is the last thing he wanted was to see heckling from his caucus. As we saw, it didn't take more than a few minutes before the heckling began. Biden's been around politics for a long time. He knows how to roll with the punches, so to speak. So some of that was certainly him. I think that they knew that That was a professional politician, wasn't it? Yeah, he was a professional politician. And so while a lot of people talk about how he can't finish a sentence, sometimes he mangles his sentence. He was really talking really fast at times during the State of the Union, where it was hard to really pick up what he was saying. When it comes to actually dealing with people and engaging people one-on-one, even people who might be hostile, he's quite good at it. He's done it for quite a while. That's one of the reasons, frankly, why we do this podcast. There are so many inputs to policy. There's so many inputs to what makes this country move forward. There are legal reasons why things happen. There are economic reasons why things happen. And the politics of why things happen is part of what we are going to explore. So is cutting Social Security and Medicare now off the table? Absolutely. I I think they were always off the table. I mean, I think Kevin McCarthy realized that there was not much he was going to do on that. That exchange probably helped some of those who would like to put this on the table. help them cower a little bit and move away from that position. I don't think that's ever been part of these negotiations or not negotiations for raising the debt ceiling. I just think there's no appetite for anyone in Congress to really vote for that. Was that the first big moment, those exchanges, uh, the the, the heckling and then Biden kind of seemingly acting like he was real time negotiating? Was that the first big moment of the 2024 presidential campaign? 
Let's just say this. If you're thinking of running as a Republican for president in 2024, I would go back to the videotapes and see what you said about Social Security, because I know the Democrats have. And it's very interesting. Donald Trump has actually, he has immediately come out in defense of Social Security and Medicare. He sees the power of those issues and he's running against DeSantis. And DeSantis has said some very kind things about former Speaker Paul Ryan Mm -hmm. recently that he shared on Truth Social. And Paul Ryan, of course, is one of these Republicans who did float the idea of reforming or privatizing Social Security. Donald Trump is trying to link Ron DeSantis to Paul Ryan as tightly as he can. So let's talk about the Republican response. Sarah Huckabee Sanders gave it. She used her time to attack the Democrats as too woke. We know from Ron DeSantis and the things that he's been doing in Florida over the last weeks, months, and even potentially years, that that's his approach too. So we might have our two foils set. For Republicans, it's woke Democrats. And for Democrats, it's the Republican House. Who has the better foil? I think Democrats have the better foil because this concept of woke Democrats is not clear to everybody. And while it may be a potential problem for some Democrats, I think the Republican House is an uncontrollable mess and they're in position of power. You know, you can talk about whatever Ron DeSantis wants to talk about. I thought that the comments that Sarah Huckabee Sanders made, the comments that Donald Trump made in his response, the positioning that Ron DeSantis is doing ahead of his possibly jumping in this presidential race, the one thing it shows is that the Republican Party isn't really unified by much. It's all culture war, culture war all the time. There is no policy that really binds them together anymore. It's certainly not reforming or privatizing Social Security. You can see that with Donald Trump's reaction. It's not even a clear, cohesive economic policy, meaning they're not all agreed on economics. They're not all agreed on trade. They're not all agreed on protectionism versus globalization. There's big divisions. Exactly. And that it goes back to our previous point, which is when you're talking about the debt ceiling and budget cuts, the Democrats have a very simple response to Republicans. Detail what cuts you want. And they know that they don't have a majority for any of those cuts. It's the same with any of these other policies. Democrats, while at times they can seem less unified, there's not as much difference between Bernie Sanders on the left and Joe Manchin on the right, really, when it comes down to it. They're all actually working towards policies that are going to make this country better. And it's very hard, at least when you listen to Sarah Huckabee Sanders or Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis, or we're going to hear from Nikki Haley next week as she jumps into the presidential race. There isn't any common unifying thread behind what the Republican Party stands for. They know what they're against, and it's always these cultural issues. I think that's probably because they realize their policies don't have majority support. I just think the Democrats have a stronger hand as you head into 2024. So let's talk, though, about one policy where Republicans do seem to have a point of view, and it seems a bit cohesive within Republican circles, and that's education, and that's schools. In the State of the Union, when Biden proposed giving public school teachers raises, Democrats cheered and Republicans sat on their hands. Simultaneously, you might have seen the Washington Post story with the headline, more states are paying to send children to private and religious schools. And the story goes on. For years, school choice advocates toted up small victories in their drive to give parents taxpayer money to pay for private school. Now, Republican-led states across the country are leaving the limitations of the past behind them as they consider sweeping new voucher laws that would let every family use public funds to pay for private school. 
Last year, Arizona created what activists considered a model program. I'm still reading the Washington Post piece here. Every child who forgoes public school for private programs, including religious schools, is eligible for a taxpayer-funded payment worth $7,000, almost as much as the state sends to public schools per student. In January, Iowa and Utah followed suit, creating their own universal programs. GOP governors in Arkansas, including Sarah Huckabee Sanders, South Carolina, Virginia, and Oklahoma have listed these programs among their top priorities for 2023. In other states, Republican lawmakers are pushing the same. Tegan, is this an issue that's popular in selected red states only, or is this something that plays nationally? How do the politics work here? I don't think that it's necessarily something that plays nationally. In fact, the education issue at its core is a local issue and that each of these efforts is really an attempt to let parents choose the policies of their school districts. So you have an issue in addition to what you're talking about, about using public funds to pay for private and religious schools. You have an issue in Tennessee where the Speaker of the House in Tennessee wants to reject all federal money for education so that there are no strings attached to what they can do in the Tennessee schools. Can Um, New York have that money? Can can we take the Tennessee money? If that were to happen, the funds are allocated at Congress. And so when Biden talks about giving public school teachers raises, the federal government does not decide what teacher salaries are. That's really Biden saying we should give schools more money so that they can pay their teachers more money. But it was pretty indicative when you saw the Republicans sitting during that. I know that the teachers unions are generally more democratic, support more democratic candidates. So on the one hand, I understand that component of it. On the other hand, sitting on your hands, I'm not for supporting teachers. I'm not for giving teachers raises. I mean, I understand they don't agree with all of the policies and there are the books and there's what's going on in Florida. But do people think that these public school teachers are overpaid? I don't think it has anything to do with the amount of money. I think it has to do with the federal control of the schools. That's what they're talking about. You look at Florida, where Ron DeSantis has actively involved himself in school board races. That is all to put their imprint on schools, to put his imprint on the local schools. The main reason for someone like DeSantis is that he sees it as a politically viable issue. So what they're struggling with now in Florida is these laws that you can ban books from school libraries. And turns out that while that might sound like a good idea when you're sitting around a conference table with your allies, in practice, it turns out you're banning an awful lot of books that don't really seem that terrible. And so you've got a lot of school districts now who are resorting to being ultra conservative about this because of the penalties attached. And they're just literally covering up entire books shelves with paper so that students can't see books because they're worried about lawsuits that parents are able to bring against the schools. It's a big issue. I mean, going back to the pandemic when so many schools were closed and parents rebelled, most parents, that was not a very popular position to close your schools during the pandemic, particularly as the pandemic moved along. Republicans have an issue here. I can't say they're unified about what they want to do with it. And I think it's pretty dicey. So it gets into some pretty dicey areas that actually probably won't be that popular. But nonetheless, Democrats will have to tread lightly as well as they address this. It's something for us to keep an eye on, because if the discussion becomes, do Republicans have the ability to move into policies or is it purely culture that they're going to attack? Education is perhaps an area where the two really do directly overlap. The 
culture issue overlaps directly with policy. There may be other examples as well. I think that's a great point. And the other thing to say alongside that is just like we saw with abortion over 40 years in how much money and how there was a national effort to move to ban abortion, there is a national effort on the right to control public schools. And they are actively involving themselves in local races. These are the races that in your town and in my town that only 10 or 15% of voters show up for these races. They're easily won. And if you put a little money behind them, you might be able to get your candidates in a position of policy control of your local school districts. And this is where this war is going to be fought out. And it's not going to be won this year or next year or even in the next 10 years. It is a battle that's going on and Democrats should not be ignoring it. I want to get to our first mailbag question. We will close the show with Embo66, who asked about the motion to vacate. So Embo66 wrote on Political Wire, I actually listened to and enjoyed the Trial Balloon podcast, which was largely devoted to a discussion on the debt ceiling. Thank you, Embo66. But I have a question that has been bothering me for weeks, so I hope Tegan can answer. Okay, there you go, big man. Pressure's on you. You ready for this? Pressure is on. Why does everyone in the chattering classes, the media, pundits, politicians, act as if just calling for a motion to vacate will immediately spell McCarthy's doom? As far as I understand it, that motion doesn't even automatically trigger a floor vote. It could be moved to a committee or even be deemed procedurally irrelevant, meaning the motion could essentially die right there. And even if the motion did reach the floor for a full vote, why is the assumption always that McCarthy would lose? Isn't it quite possible that many House Republicans would still prefer to keep McCarthy around, not to mention most of the Democrats? Given it takes just 218 votes to retain the Speaker, even a floor vote may not oust him. I understand that just the motion itself might be damaging to McCarthy's rep and cred, but really, could anything be worse than what we already witnessed at the State of the Union address? <laughs> so, Tegan, what is the motion to vacate? What's up with the motion to vacate? Please describe what it is and then kindly let us know your view. Is it a whole lot of nothing? The motion to vacate the chair was really the one of the main issues that uh, prevented Kevin McCarthy from assuming the speakership so quickly. Matt Gates and others held out for reducing the threshold in terms of the number of people required to bring such a motion to basically have a vote on the speakership. But you have to keep in mind, and this is where MBO 66 is completely correct, any member of Congress at any time can bring up a motion to vacate. So Democrats can do it. There's plenty of Democrats that don't like Kevin McCarthy, but that doesn't mean it goes anywhere. The power of it is really only when you've got, in the case of Kevin McCarthy, he's only got a five-seat majority. If there are five or more people in his caucus who are tired of him and who would like a change, you kind of have to have somebody who you want to switch him with. The power of it comes when there are actually enough of those. And so that's why I think Kevin McCarthy wasn't so worried about moving from five members needed to sign on to one member, because practically, as it's said here, I think Republicans would prefer to have McCarthy around rather than to get into one of these drawn out matches. That said, when we get into some difficult issues and we get into some issues where the five or the 10 or the 20 Republicans really disagree with the majority of their caucus, that's when it becomes pretty important. That's what happened with John Boehner. Ultimately, he was forced out. He was forced to resign because he knew he would lose such a vote. Paul Ryan decided to retire because he realized that ultimately that would be his fate as well. 
At some point, Kevin McCarthy will probably suffer from this unless he somehow becomes a magical politician like Nancy Pelosi and is able to herd his caucus in his way. Maybe it'll be on the debt ceiling issue. Maybe it'll be on some of these spending cuts. We're not sure. It could be on something completely unrelated or something that pops up. That's where the power of it lies. It's not one of these things where at any given time he could come into work in the morning and there's a motion to vacate and now we're going to have to rally the votes. It really is something that will only come up when there seems to be enough of them. And right now, Republicans have their speaker and they're not going to eject him unless they have good reason to. Thank you to Embo66. And now I'm going to do my best Matt Gates impression and enter a motion to vacate this episode of the podcast. Chris, it's been a pleasure, but I will talk to you next week. Talk to you later, Tegan.